Well, good evening. Welcome to our live stream of Heavenly Memories as we talk about heaven. And uh, we've had some wonderful studies. And tonight I'm really excited about the things we're going to cover with. I am as well. And uh, I'm eager for some of the, the different aspects of tonight that uh, I'm going to try and keep under wraps. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there when we get there. Uh, just a, an exciting time to be able to reflect on uh, the truths of God's Word and also our heavenly home, our, our heavenly destination, uh, if you will. So as we get started, Andy, I think just by way of review, it would probably be helpful uh, to think back through what are some of the topics that we've covered uh, to date uh, related to heaven. Okay, so fundamentally uh, we begin with Colossians 3 and the need to be thinking about or meditating on heaven all the time, every day. We should be setting our hearts on things above. We should be, like Paul said, realizing that our, our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us and to us. Um, that our, our sufferings, whatever difficulties we may be having, are light and momentary compared to the expansive, the immense infinity of experiences that we're going to have in the new heaven, new earth that we would have uh, hope, hearts filled with hope, mm -hmm. and be able to share that with people who are so hopeless, people who don't have any hope, especially during the, these days of COVID-19, to be able to just be radiant with hope and optimism. Uh, so we've covered some things like, um, basic, the basic premise of my book is that we will remember uh, the past or be taught the past in heaven, that heaven is, will not be a static, boring place, but a dynamic place that we will never be omniscient, so there'll always be something more to learn, and God will show us the past for His own glory. Hmm. That, that heaven's all about God's glory, a revelation of the attributes of God. And this incredible tapestry, this complex tapestry of human history, God is going to unfurl it and describe every thread, every square inch, and also the big picture. We're going to see all of that. We've talked about how uh, at present, we can't fully grasp all of those things, but we're going to have an infinite upgrade in the resurrection. Our resurrection bodies, minds, and hearts will be completely pure and perfect. We will love what God loves and hate what God hates, and we'll be ready to learn and to grow. We won't be weary or tired mentally or physically. Um, we've talked about rewards. We did that last week and, and how the good deeds that we do that survive the Judgment Day testing, the gold, silver, costly stones that are purified by fire, we will, uh, we will celebrate those. Not just our own, but we'll celebrate those of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So mm. we talked about some of that last week. So those are just some of the things that we've covered already. And tonight we're talking about the grand narrative or the mm -hmm. overarching sweep of all of human history. Wow. So why do some Christians like to call it maybe redemptive history? Okay. Uh, and how do both secular history and redemptive history mesh together? So redemptive history is an expression used by church historians to say that there's a purpose to history, and that is uh, the redemption of God's elect through the saving work of Christ. And so from Adam and Eve in the garden until the second coming of Christ, there's an unfolding story of redemption or of salvation, redemptive history. Mm. Others then would say there's also secular history, which has nothing to do, so they would say, with um, salvation or with God's purpose or the kingdom of God, but we know differently. We know actually there is no big difference in the mind of God. God mm. is actually controlling all things directly uh, for His glory and that we'll find out in heaven. So the whole thing is woven together. So in the chapter, I think it's entitled The Grand Narrative, mm -hmm. what, what's the main point? The main point is God is glorified by both the grand overarching sweep 
and the tiniest details. And so the idea is that we are going to be able to see the glory of God in the big picture, 6,000 years of human history, and then how each atomic detail of history, even the tiniest detail, fit into that beautiful grand narrative. You could picture a, a beautiful tapestry, uh, a wall hanging kind of level tapestry that could be on, a, on the wall of a, of a medieval castle, something massive. And, and all of these different colored threads, bright and dark, and how all of them were woven on the loom of God's sovereignty, His providence, to create an amazing picture. And the picture mm -hmm. is the glory of God in Christ and salvation, but then every thread is worth studying. And like I mentioned ago, jokingly about something like the internet not working <laughs> or technology failing us, there are so many things like this that are not understood by us now fully, but I think that it's related to our understanding or embracing of the absolute sovereignty of God. Why does that matter when we study human history, and how is Acts 17.26 important for this as well? Right, so there, there are some very pessimistic views of history. Like Henry Ford famously said, history is bunk. Uh, so he's, he was a very practical machine head kind of guy yeah. that, that set up assembly lines and made cars. Um, you know, even Shakespeare uh, said that life, that effectively history, is like a, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Mm. Now that phrase right there is the key, signifying nothing. There's no meaning to it. There's nothing to it. And so atheistic, Darwinistic, naturalistic evolution would say there is no meaning in history, there's no reason why anything happened. Mm -hmm. So the secular mindset is, look, tornadoes happen, storms happen, stuff happens, and there's no reason to it, there's no purpose. But we Christians believe that there's an intelligence behind not only nature, but history. And so a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. Yeah. That God is actually controlling, Proverbs 21.1, the mind of kings that the king's heart is like a watercourse in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whichever way he pleases. Mm. So a meticulous providential control over even the smallest details of history is essential to our hope and our view of history. Yeah. So I think along those same lines, uh, you know, as we think about being upfitted to understand and mm. comprehend all that God has done, we trust and believe in his sovereignty now, mm. but why would it be basically impossible for us to have this kind of comprehensive knowledge of history now that we're saying we'll be able to have in heaven. Sure. Well, we're just limited in every respect. We, we are limited. Uh, the Apostle John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, said that he didn't write everything Jesus did. Indeed, if he did, the world couldn't contain the books that would be written. You could think about like the data storage size, size on your hard drive. And back when, when laptops were first coming out, we frequently bumped into mm. the data storage. Now it's just amazing how many gigabytes can go on a hard drive. But early on, you regularly ran into, you'd bump into the 40, 40 meg hard drive or something like that, and that was it. Especially with pictures, when digital pictures came in. Sure. You get a handful of those and you're full. Done. So we are limited in our ability to comprehend. We are limited in our intellectual ability to synthesize the things we learn. You have to retain seven or eight threads and put them together and then there's this aha moment. Not everybody has the, the intellectual ability to do that. We all are limited compared to reality and, and what God can do. 
Um, and so just that, there's a, a fatigue factor, there's a forgetfulness factor. So we cannot reach that level of understanding in this world. Mm -hmm. And also there's, there's some very, very important things that are keys to the whole puzzle that we cannot know. They're hidden from us. God is hidden them from us. Until we get to heaven, we'll never know them. Hmm. Well, as we're talking about history and thinking about different aspects of this, we'd also love to hear from you. If you have questions, the number's on the screen for you to text in questions. Uh, obviously, I've got some more here, and I'm eager to talk about history and how that relates to heaven and our understanding of it. But if there's questions that come to your mind as we're talking, we'd love to hear from you as well. So you can text the number on your screen uh, to let us know uh, what questions you have. Hmm. So... 2 Peter 3 8 uh, says, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Mm. What's the significance of that passage for this topic that we're talking about tonight? It's an incredible verse. It's just an incredible verse. And most Christians, when they hear it, their mind goes to the second half a thousand years are like a day. Mm. And so you bring that in, and, and, and we should, when Jesus says it at the end of Revelation, actually three times in the final chapter, Behold, I am coming soon. Well, apparently his definition of soon and ours <laughs> seems different. It's been 2,000 years. But yes, Second Peter 3, 8 says, With the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. So what that means is he is uh, eternal, flying above all of history, and so the six millennia of recorded human history is, is like six days, not even a week to him. Um, but the first part is fascinating to me. With the Lord, a single day is like a thousand years. So as I, 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 as I was writing this chapter, I was thinking about, suppose a historian, an eminent historian, with excellent research skills and writing skills, should decide to write a comprehensive history of a single date in the 20th century. So, November 22nd, 1922. Let's pick that date at random. random Nothing day. particularly special. I don't know anything that happened that day. Um, but you're talking about six habited, inhabited continents. You're talking about n nations within those continents. Mm -hmm. You're talking about cities with teeming millions in, of populations in the urban centers. Uh, World War One had just ended. You've got you've got the economy. You've got science, the arts, literature. You've got you know sports, all kinds of stuff happening. I don't un have any idea how one historian could write a comprehensive history of a, of a single date hmm. of planet Earth. And furthermore, would he have the ability to synthesize it and put it into words? And then let's be honest, who would read it? <laughs> I mean, who would publish it and who would read it? Nobody wants to read that much about a single date. But God knows more than such a historian would ever know about that date. And there are stories to tell. Mm. And so that combination with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day, gives that big, grand, overarching scope, and then zeroing in on the details. And we need to understand the big picture and the details together. They have to harmonize or we're not going to understand what we're learning. I want to zero in on that phrase you just mm -hmm. used, scope and detail. Right. So it seems like there's this expansive nature of history that's all-encompassing, mm -hmm. but then also some specific details that sure. are a part of that story. Yeah. So there's a, a phrase, the forest for the trees, usually we hear it like, you don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Right. Um, how does that phrase mm. uh, relate to what we're talking about here? 
Yeah, that has to do with scope. Uh, the overarching scope is the forest, and then the individual trees are the details. And the whole big uh, forest is made up of individual trees. So this, in this case, you're looking at uh, the ability to zero in on details. And I'll talk about that expression in a minute. But just you can see how if we were in heaven and God gave us a flyover of history, and we're, we're flying at the 10,000 foot level and we're going fast and we're going over all of this thing, um, and, and we see, I don't know, some invading army with soldiers wearing certain color uniforms and they're coming into some well-watered valley and we see that and then um, later in our in our survey we see two men sitting at a table very angrily discussing some document in between the two of them and then and then a little bit later you see a woman with a with a telegram that she's got in her hand and she is filled with just, her eyes are filled with tears of joy and she just can't believe the good news in this telegram and then uh, later we see a young boy cowering in a cave while two really scary-looking men walk by the opening to the cave and keep going. Fourth, we don't know what's going on. What, what's happening? There are backstories and there are contexts to mm -hmm. all of that that would make it then fascinating. So we're, we've got to see this big picture, the invading army, the two diplomats sitting, let's say, at a table, who they represent, what the document is in front of And then we're like, oh, wow. There's a lot going on there. Hmm. And so we've got to be able to see the big picture. But picture, on the other hand, a guy that's so detail-oriented that he is just like the absent-minded professor. I picture this guy down on hands and knees, and he is the world expert at redwood tree bark. And for the last eight years, he's been studying one particular square inch of bark on a particular redwood tree in Northern California. Hmm. I don't know how he would have the attention span, but he's there <laughs> with his magnifying glass, and there's like two or three ants that come regularly, and he knows which is which and all that. And you're like, dude. Um, so you can imagine a friend coming along and saying, and then the friend uh, is a helicopter pilot. He said, I want to give you a, I want to give you a day, day off. I want you to come with me. Hmm. And he puts him in his, in his expensive helicopter, and they go for a three or four hour tour of the entire Redwood National Forest, going up and down 50 miles of North Carolina's spectacular cliffs and coastline with the crashing Pacific. And then you see 110,000 acres of massive redwoods. Hmm. And you just drink that big picture in. And then the next day, the guy goes back to studying the bark and so for me, as I look at it, both of those are important. The details, even down to the tiniest details, sparrows fall into the ground, weave into a large tapestry of glory that is going to be incredibly important and exciting to study. Hmm. That's pretty amazing. And when you think about history that way, it's like, oh, well, that's pretty interesting. Like, yeah. I'd be interested to learn more about that. Sure. But I don't know, at least for me, uh, I know we've talked about this before, maybe a little different from your perspective, but sure. I think for, for many of us, we look at history and we think, oh, history. Yeah. Gonna, I have to learn history. You know, you've got the, the elementary school child who learns that, oh, I have to learn world history. I have to learn American history. Mm -hmm. uh, why, why are we that way now? Why is that our perspective on history? Well, let's just talk about boredom. Uh, one, of the, one of the things uh, that that we bump into all the time and maybe here COVID-19 people are getting a little tired of the narrow scope of things they can do at home. 
um, tired of streaming videos, tired of yeah. Zoom meetings, any chance that we might be tired, that we've done a lot of those. Yeah. Um, and, and just the narrow scope, and so we get bored. But I actually think boredom is a form of mental uh, weakness. Um, it, it's just a form of fatigue, attention span fatigue. Mm. And so we get bored. I don't think Jesus ever got bored at anything. Um, his mind was just different than ours. When Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field, think about that, consider them, ponder them. Would you enjoy, Wes, spending an hour with Jesus considering a sing single lily of the field? Would you enjoy that? I think, so. I, think I would absolutely <laughs> that would enjoy amazing. that. He, he could tell us things about that flower that we couldn't even imagine. Mm. And it's like, there's nothing boring when seen through Jesus, the infinite mind of God. And so, therefore, history itself isn't boring. It is taught, I think, in ways that can be boring. I, I myself am a history professor. And I think, you know, you think about genealogies, uh, you think about, about uh, chronologies and different things, and just bare recitations of kings' names and treaties and, and dates. It, it does cause the mind to blur a bit. But keep in mind what we said also, I think a couple weeks ago, we talked about visionary learning in history, of history in heaven, that God, it's, it's quite likely, will not merely tell us history, but since heaven's all about seeing, mm -hmm. show it to us. And that he would actually be able to transport us and drop us into historical settings better than any movie producer could do. And it would be so amazingly realistic. Meanwhile, we're getting all of the significance in the backstory from God. How could that possibly be boring? Thrilled. Yeah, amazing to think about seeing things firsthand. And, and we were talking a little earlier about just the number of things that seem insignificant to us mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. But in this grand narrative, in this big story, yeah. have incredible significance. And mm -hmm. to see that moment and to really zero in on, Lord, what were you doing there? What were you doing in that one individual's life that then would affect hundreds, thousands, who knows, just depending on the person and the time and whose life we zero in on and how God used them. Uh, just incredible to think of all the things that have happened throughout Yeah, history. and I think many people have had this concept before. It isn't just me or us talking right now. There's the butterfly effect that some people talk hmm. about where the fla flapping of the wings of a butterfly through chaos theory can affect like a hurricane somewhere else in the world. There's just an accumulation of small effects. Um, Ray Bradbury wrote uh, a, a story, I think, The Distant Sound of Thunder, something like that, where you could go back in time as a hunter and you could hunt a T-Rex. But you're supposed to stay in this elevated path, and if you stepped off the path, that was huge. You could not do that, because that could actually alter history. Mm -hmm. So it's that old time travel thing. Sure. You step off, you, and then this guy actually literally did step on a butterfly and kill it. When he came back, the outcome of a political election had changed. Everything had changed in society because of the butterfly. Um, and so there's also just those aspects of, of tiny detail. God knows that the material universe is made up of atoms. He knows the significance of a tiny detail. And so therefore, human history is made up of individual decisions. People made a decision to do this and not that. And, and it makes an effect. One of my favorite movies is Ben-Hur um, with Charlton Heston. I love the original Ben-Hur and all that and, and, and big things happen when the new governor of Judea comes in, he's riding in, a, in an entourage and uh, he's riding past the house of her and a, 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 a tile breaks loose and falls right near the, the, um, the governor's horse and mm. causes the horse to rear 
and throw the governor from the horse. He's not seriously injured, but then Masala, who's the second in command and Charlton Heston's boyhood friend, uses it as a pretext to basically imprison the whole family and persecute them. And um, this other woman, Miriam, who loves Charlton Heston and they, she hopes to start a family with him, she's anguished by how much bitterness and history and all of the terrible things that started that day. And she said, the, the, the stone that fell from the roof is still falling mm. and it's still rolling. It's like this avalanche that was started with this little pebble. Human history is like that. So details matter and we'll find out in heaven just how much they did. Mm. I think that relates back to our earlier comments on the sovereignty of God. Mm -hmm. You think about how comforting that can be to us now because there are so many things that feel like a stone that's still falling or something that's right. still having effects in our life that we just don't have the answers but to know it's not chaotic. Yeah. You know, when I think chaos theory, when I think right. chaos, just the word, I think disorder. I think yeah. things falling apart, just horrible things that we can't comprehend the meaning. But to trust in and believe in the sovereignty of God over all of that gives meaning and purpose to history. Yeah. I think what we're going to find is that sin is essentially chaotic and randomizing and irrational. And God is relentlessly rational and orderly and... Um, beautiful in his mind and his thinking and we're going to see the contrast very clearly in heaven. Hmm. So why do you think Andy it'll be so fascinating to study God's power over the rulers of the earth? You know that's one aspect of history that you know nations and dynasties that rise and fall why will it be so interesting for us to study those empires? Well, empires are made by great rulers that, that had incredible capabilities, and uh, you think about the incredible skills and power of Nebuchadnezzar, the uh, emperor of Babylon, his intelligence, his military prowess, his knowledge of science and arts, mm. and the way he set up his kingdom and all that. He was the head of gold in the, in the statues in Daniel chapter 2. And so it is powerful for me to contemplate that these movers and shakers in human history, these great rulers, Genghis Khan, and Julius Caesar, and Napoleon, Alexander the Great, and Hitler, Stalin, all of these great, great figures, that their hands are like, or sorry, their, their um, minds, their hearts are like a watercourse in the hands of the Lord, hmm. that he sovereignly overrules and directs them. Psalm 2 really talks about this, how most of them are wicked and use their power to oppose the kingdom of God. They oppose Christ. Mm. And so Psalm 2 says, uh, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, Let us break their chains and throw their fetters asunder. The one enthroned in heaven laughs at them. Now the laughter of God from heaven is because of his surpassingly great power. He is infinitely above them. All of the nations before him are like a drop from the bucket and like dust on the scales. Mm -hmm. God, the gap between the most powerful potentate on earth that's ever been and God cannot be measured. And so God laughs at their puny little rebellions. And he actually, his laughter is his providential turning of their schemes and plots and snares around for his own purposes. He does this again and again. Wow, that's amazing. And I love that we have even illustrations of that in action. Think of Acts, I believe it's chapter four, yep. where Psalm two is quoted. Sure. And it's, it's really acknowledging, recognizing 
the reality, even in human history, as it's happening, that God is the one who reigns over these things and no human ruler will prevail against his purposes. Yeah, I mean, the clear example, the clearest example of this is the plotting and scheming and conniving that started with the Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests and the Sanhedrin to kill Jesus. Hmm. And then bringing Pilate, bringing Herod into it and their plotting and scheming and they had different agendas. And all of that, and then it says in Acts 4, they did what your power and will had determined beforehand should happen. So the most dastardly, wicked plot ever, the murder of the perfect Son of God, was planned by God for the salvation of the world. And so that's the, big, the biggest example, but there's so many smaller examples as well. So we do have one question that came in, and it's a little bit uh, in reference to a topic we've addressed in past weeks. But I do think it's helpful as we think about even even facing death in this life and how our understanding of even our own history, looking back at our family uh, of the history of people that have been close to us. You know, the question is that there are you know certain texts that point to concepts like soul sleep and other uh, point to being immediately in heaven or paradise after death. Just maybe some clarity. I know we've talked about this in past weeks, but it does help. I think just to understand what. What do we know about that aspect of, of even the history of those close to us? Okay, so soul sleep is not biblical. Uh, soul sleep is the concept that when you die, you go into a kind of a soul cryogenic state. Mm. And then you wake up along with everyone else at the end of the world, at Judgment Day, something like that. And so the intervening stuff you're unaware of. But it's not biblical because, um, first of all, uh, Paul in Second Corinthians 5 talks about being absent from the body and pl- present with the Lord. And mm. what could there, what is it? that is absent from the body but present with the Lord other than the human soul. Mm-hmm. And so the, the immaterial part of us goes to be with God when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, that was his soul separated from his mortal body. The legs were broken, as you remember, um, and of the other thief as well. Jesus' legs were not broken because he was already dead. But this man's legs were broken and then his broken body was put into some grave somewhere, I don't know where. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and went to corruption. But his soul went to be with God. And also Hebrews 11 speaks of the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So they are in the heavenly Zion, they're worshiping God around his heavenly throne and waiting for the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Also the book of Revelation depicts martyrs who are under the throne or under the, uh, the altar of God in heaven saying how long until we're avenged. So they're very well aware that they've not been avenged yet. There's an unfolding of history that they're watching but they are uh, they're uh, alert and awake up in heaven, but they are absent from the body. Yeah. So. Well, it's really helpful, and again, I think it's just it's it's helpful for us to to take what the scriptures say, and I love that about the approach that you've taken in this topic to not speculate, to not think, you know, what do we want it to be like? Because that that can be hard. There are there are certain difficult questions that we can seek to answer uh, apart from the scriptures, but the only sufficient answer, the only helpful, truly helpful answer is to ask that question from the book of Romans. What do the scriptures say? What does the scripture say? And to that end, you know, the book of Daniel Mm -hmm. has some interesting things to say just about history, but also the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, How does the book of Daniel help us imagine what this history lesson might be like in heaven? The book of Daniel is amazing. There's so many incredible things about, about the book of Daniel. I could go on and on, but um, so many of the chapters depict God's sovereign power over human history. We need to know why. Keep in mind the book begins with a very small remnant of Jews being exiled from Jerusalem 
to Babylon. They're taken out of their home. The city of, of Jerusalem is destroyed, left a smoldering ruin. The articles from the temple are taken and put in the temple of a pagan god. Uh, the Solomon's temple is destroyed, burned with fire. Mm -hmm. it's, it's terrible. So the Jewish people need to know God is still on his throne. The people are being disciplined, as Daniel 9 says, and he prays, because they have violated the covenant of God. And, and Daniel answers the reason why. But the bigger picture is God is ruling over human history. And so it comes in again and again. Daniel chapter 2, mm. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue with a, with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly iron, partly clay, representing a succession of empires, world empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and then a final form in which there is this mixture of clay and iron of and various toes, uh, ten toes and all that. It's a very complex image, but they represent the unfolding and the span of human history. Then suddenly, a rock is cut out, but not by human hands. It strikes the statue on its feet of clay. That's where the expression comes, feet of clay. And the whole thing collapses into this pile of chaff. Mm. Like you can imagine, like the whole thing seems like it was made out of crystal. And it just dissolves or, or crashes down into this pile of chaff. And then the wind blows. And it blows the whole thing away, listen to this, without leaving a trace. Mm. It's gone. But... The rock that was cut out, but not by human hands, that struck the statue becomes a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. And the interpretation is given that the statue represents human history, the rock represents a kingdom, Christ, that will be set up by God's power, not by human power, that will rule the whole earth. That's Daniel 2. It's a vision. Daniel 3, you get this tyrant potentate that persecutes godly people who won't bow down to a statue of gold. Hmm. Then chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar gets his comeuppance when he has an image of a huge tree that represents him and his majestic kingly power, cut down, stripped, and then for seven years his mind is changed to that of an animal. And then God restores him to his throne, showing that even at the individual level, no matter how powerful a king is, he is in God's hand. Mm. And those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. He can take you out at any moment. And God was gracious to Nebuchadnezzar and reestablished him on his throne and I think transformed his heart, transformed him into an actual believer who mm -hmm. worshiped God, the sovereign king, who says all kings and, and emperor, empires are as nothing before him. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the kingdoms of the earth. Absolute sovereignty. Then in Daniel 5, Belshazzar wickedly, forgetting the earlier lessons, drinks out of these, these, these articles that were taken, these holy articles, cups and all that taken from the temple and he praises the gods the pagan gods of wood iron bronze and stone and then the fingers come on the wall and his kingdom is taken from him that very night god's sovereign he rules over everything and then uh, again we have images in daniel 7 of of four beasts that come up out of the sea wicked empires that come up and human empires are like beast-like they 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 rip and tear flesh and they consume um and yet God is on his throne of fire mm. over all things, ruling over everything. And the court is seated and, and he decides what's going to happen and judges 
the the kingdoms of the earth and then you get one like a son of man coming jesus into his presence and all authority sovereign power is given to him and he is the king of kings and lord of lords what a great image and you know daniel 7 and 8 we have this image of the little horn and antichrist mm -hmm. figure who will be the final figure of human history that's yet to come who will rule over all the earth a worldwide empire will set his kingdom up against god and will persecute the saints and crush them but god will come in his mighty power with his angels and put an end to all of human history and set up his kingdom that will live forever and ever book of daniel mm -hmm. now i showed you right before we went on the air yep. daniel 11 uh, in which the, the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great's Empire, is divided four ways, and two of the kingdoms, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, fight over Palestine. They fight each other relentlessly, like great Greek city king, kingdoms did. They fought each other relentlessly, and the whole thing's predicted. In Daniel 11, the king of the north and the king of the south, and then succeeding generations and all that, there are 126, I believe, specific prophecies in Daniel 11 about a minor aspect of human history in the intertestamental period that most Christians don't even know that much about. Mm -hmm. God is showing, I guess, flexing his prophetic muscles, saying, look, absolutely everything is under control. And one of my favorite little moments, I kind of alluded to it earlier, yeah. Daniel 11:27. these two wicked kings, these two evil kings, will sit at the same table as they're negotiating, and will lie to each other, but to no avail because the end will still come at the appointed time. I just love that verse because here you got human beings, wicked human beings, doing their wicked kingly things, and God's overruling all of it, and they'll last just as long as they want to last. Mm. Now, you mentioned earlier, and I didn't go into it, um, Acts 17, 26, where the Apostle Paul says in Athens, from one man, Adam, he made every nation of men, of all humans, that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God sovereignly rules over all the major and minor kingdoms. Think about the Navajo and the Apache, the Native American kingdoms, or the African kingdoms that went on. Most of them aren't recorded in history. God determined how long they would reign, how long Genghis Khan and his successors would reign over the largest empire in history, all of those things. We didn't mention this wall chart behind us, did we? Is no, that, we is that didn't. coming up later, or well, so? Uh, anytime you're ready, uh, kind of, kind of teased this at the beginning that we had something unique tonight that we wanted to share with you. So, Andy, why don't you tell us what exactly? The wall is? chart of human history, <laughs> done by Professor Edward Hull in 1988. It's behind me. I don't know if you can see it that well. It's 15 feet two inches long. Unbelievable. It is incredible. With <laughs> panel after panel, I don't remember how many panels there are, but the panels cover like 400 years each, something like that. It goes from Adam to Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping. And then I guess he, he ended it there. It's broken into like rivers and rivulets and tributaries. Like one of the panels, uh, the one that goes from 1300 to 1700, um, has something like 26 different streams from top to bottom. It has nothing to do with Japan or Southeast Asia or India or Africa, Latin America, what we call Latin, South, Central, or North America, none of that. It's pretty significant. You know, uh, things. Just amazing <laughs> things, but it's all they can do. And these little tributaries, such as Norway, Greece, France, England, a lot of European, they're broken up into kings or queens um, with lines, and you get the king's name, and that's it. On one of the panels, 382 heads of state are listed, as best I could tell. My eyesight wasn't the greatest. I need a magnifying glass. But 382 on one panel. 
This is an amazing achievement of scholarship. And yet it is like child's play compared to the level of grand scope and detail God's going to give us in heaven. So that's the wall chart of human history. Behind Unbelievable. Us. Yeah, I mean, and as we were talking about this earlier, I was just amazed at, you know, back to what Second Peter talks about, the thousand years and a day, a day and a thousand years. You just think, you take one of those rulers off of there and say, what happened in their life? No, better yet, what happened in their kingdom during just their life? Yeah. What happened in every individual's life that made up that kingdom? Right. And is that significant? Yes. Yeah. It's a part of this overarching grand narrative of what yeah. God has been doing since the beginning of time. Absolutely. And, and, you know, even the most wicked kings, God ruled over them and controlled them and channeled them and allowed them to do certain things and forbid them from doing other things. Long before the gospel even reached their lands, certain redemptive analogies perhaps were being set up in society, which would enable later missionaries to explain the gospel better. Certain things were being set up and prepared. God was just ruling over all of these things. Mm -hmm. Later on, as the gospel spread from place to place, within that mighty pagan kingdom, there would be a pockets, remnants of Christians carrying on their Christian lives. It's just going to be staggeringly amazing to study all this in history. I mean, in heaven. And I really am looking forward to that because I, I do. You know, my, you've mentioned this in previous weeks. My attention span is just so limited. And my interest in other people... <laughs> Pridefully so is so limited, right? But so think about think about a friend goes on a mission trip for six weeks, comes back with tons of pictures. So that's a test of friendship right there. It's like, <laughs> hey, wait till you see or your vacation. Let me sure. show you my pictures sure. from our beach vacation. And it's like, ah. <laughs> great. Sounds cool. like, looks like a lot of fun. Looks like you guys had a great time. <laughs> Yeah, after about a minute and a half. We're not going to be like that in heaven. We are mm. going to be so into other people's stories. So. That's amazing. So we do have just a couple questions, okay. if we've got time for that. And um, these are really related to uh, that that time in heaven now. And I think, mm. you know, this is something that comes up week sure. after week, just questions that people have about what what is that like now. now? You sure. know, and, and again, I think one of the challenges is probably more limited as to what we know from Scripture specifically about what's happening now sure. but let me let me just uh, begin with you know the first one how should we think about because we've talked about books even movies things that uh, talk about these visions near-death experiences or even end of life for folks how can we think well about what people may be experiencing in that moment so even right. preceding death and then leading into that sure. you know what what is happening for someone in those moments Sure. One thing we just need to say about near-death experiences is they don't come with any stamp of scriptural approval. So we don't mm -hmm. have any Bible verses that tell us about them mm -hmm. or what we should think about them. So they are very dubious in terms of any, any basis from which we get information about the next world or the present, you know, invisible spiritual realms. We have to trust scripture and believe that the scripture is sufficient to teach us those things. So I believe that near-death experiences actually occur like dreams occur. Mm -hmm. But what I deny is that we have the scriptural right to say that the information gleaned from so-and-so's near-death experience is a valid source of information like Revelation 21 and 22 is. Concerning our information about the present heavenly world, there are some Bible verses that give us some sense of it, like I told you, absent sure. from the body, present with the Lord, 
and then Hebrews um, 12, which has uh, the spirits of righteous men in the heavenly Mount Zion worshiping God. And then even the book of Revelation covers things now when the, when the um, seven seals are broken. That's before the end of the world, before the second coming of Christ. Those, those things are going on, the tribulation, those things. And so that gives you a glimpse into the present spiritual realms. But that's about all we have. So we have more information about the new heaven, new earth from Revelation 21 and 22. So two, two quick follow-up questions related to this. So let's say at the end of life we have you know, someone who is perhaps scared or excited. Mm -hmm. and, and do we have any sense of there ever being the curtain pulled back on maybe yeah. angels and demons? I know that's kind of a whole other section of yeah. the book, spiritual realm, maybe how next that's time, happening. But, but do we get any sense that perhaps someone near the end of life is having that pull back and seeing or comprehending some of that in a way that maybe we we don't maybe, normally? Maybe that could happen, but just understand that's happening with lots and lots of people and there are lots and lots of books and they contradict each other. Mm. So on what basis would you choose this one and not that one? Sure. We're not saying that there are multiple different uh, afterworlds, like there's Valhalla and there's the Muslim paradise and all that, or the happy hunting ground. Um, there is one heaven and there is one hell and there, you know, so we just have to stick with scripture. So what I would say is by the law of, of non-contradiction and by the fact that the scripture doesn't give any stamp of approval on the near-death experiences, all I can say to you is maybe, mm. but I don't know for sure. Somebody's vision, their dream, I, I don't have the stamp if there's no scriptural corroboration to know that that is also true, that these things in first or second Thessalonians or in Revelation 21 or Revelation 6 are true, but so also is so-and-so's near-death experience. Mm. That we can mix it all together and get a, a good bundle of truth. I can't add that ingredient because I have no uh, spiritual stamp of approval on that dream or vision that they've had. And so, last question that I have based on questions here and related to your answer before, you know, do people have a, are people, I guess, in heaven able to see and observe things? You mentioned the martyrs who are under the altar. Yes. Um, so how does that relate to what, you know, when we observe things in the world, we experience mm -hmm. pain or grief mm -hmm. over, mm -hmm. let's say, the suffering of a loved one. Mm -hmm. what, what does that look like in heaven for those who are able to apparently see something happening? What is, right. what is that? Well, we get, a, I think, a very strong line of demarcation in Revelation 21.4 that in the new heaven, new earth, there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Does that mean that there's no death, mourning, crying, and pain now for those that are absent from the body present with the Lord? Maybe, maybe not. I don't mm. know. I just know when, when it says in Revelation 21, it's like, Behold, I'm making everything new, and now there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, and pain. Now the old order of things has passed away. Now the curse is gone. So uh, I would not want to speculate that people in the intermediate state up in heaven experience pain or any kind of suffering at all. I would I kind of put them a little bit under that Revelation 21.4 that they have no pain now, that they just are up worshiping God, trusting Him, and celebrating. But I do believe that God now has compassionate sufferings for those that are... He rejoices with those who rejoice and mourns with those who mourn. Think about the compassion He had on the Israelites that were suffering in slavery. So, I, you know, you could well imagine that, that His servants also were 
were suffering a lot. And think about the angels. When they're pouring out judgment on the earth in the book of Revelation, they're celebrating and saying, God is right for doing this because they shed the blood of your people and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Hmm. So how are the angels, where it says angels long to look into these things, they're watching unfolding events in history and they're saying to the Lord, almost like the psalmist, how long until you judge them? What is Something's going to happen. So you can imagine some, not distress, but some eagerness on God bringing his judgments and, and his salvations. So that's the best I can do on intermediate state questions. They're the hardest that I <laughs> have in are. theology. They are. And I think that that's, you know, these, these are great questions because I think they're questions we all have. But again, back to the, the foundational assertion, what do the scriptures say and how, how confident can we be? Sure. The things that scripture reveals, incredibly confident. Yeah. And things beyond that, much, much less confident. Sure. So, yeah. uh, you know, one final question that I think we can tie together with wrapping a nice bow on history. You know, just we've covered it all uh, yeah. when it comes to history. Obviously not. There's In so great much, detail. Yeah, that's right. Minutes. That's right. As evidenced <laughs> yeah. by the wall chart that there's so much more that we could discuss about history mm -hmm. and how we think about it and how God sees and rules over history. You know, just a final question that came in is thinking about treasures in heaven, so storing up things, and we've talked about rewards even last week, yeah. um, but the relationship between history and the future mm -hmm. and rewards. Mm -hmm. How can we think about how we'll look back on history mm -hmm. in relation to rewards? Yeah, rewards have to do with things that happen in space and time. They happen mm -hmm. in history. Good deeds done in a certain context that are worthy of, of honor. So when Jesus said, blessed are you when, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, hmm. rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a whole bunch of history in that. The prophets before you were persecuted. Read about it in the Old Testament. It's still remembered and they're held in honor. Jeremiah is held in honor for the courage he showed in doing a very unpopular ministry so mm -hmm. faithfully. In heaven, we'll remember how unpopular it was and how much he was hated and how much opposition and therefore how much honor should go. Uh, so that it's woven into that kind of thing. So we, we are going to celebrate the historical contexts of the great deeds. Think about con Congressional Medals of Honor. They come with citations in which you can read the stories of what they did on the battlefield. If we were to say he was really courageous and should be honored, be like, it's a non-starter. We, we but when you unfold it, you can actually then, as has been done, make a, a, a movie about, about Private Desmond Doss, who used his, his corpsman skills, his medical skills, to save lives in, uh, you know, uh, I think Okinawa or Iwo Jima, I don't remember which. And then you read it, it's like, wow, the courage he showed. Like, like you know, uh, passing wounded people hand over hand while under withering fire from the enemy and himself injured uh, so that they could get to safety. That's uh, already, you're like, wow, that guy showed a lot of courage. If I just say, so-and-so, this is his name, he's worthy of honor for showing courage, it doesn't mean much. So we have to see the, the stories, as I've said before, without... If there's no story, there's no glory. Yeah. So the, the glory's in the story. And what a vibrant way to think about history. To think about hearing, seeing mm -hmm. uh, how God has acted through uh, faithful men and women and also through those that appeared to uh, succeed in their wickedness, but then God is able to show His sovereign rule over all those things. Yeah. So. Yeah. Andy, would you pray for us as we yeah. close our time together this evening? Absolutely. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to 
to look at this topic, um, the grand narrative of redemptive history, and the tiny details, the little threads that go into that incredible tapestry, to know that every little thread, however dark or light, is going to be worthy of study and, and concentration and understanding. You get the glory, Lord. We get the joy of studying it. In the meantime, Lord, a lot of the history hasn't happened yet. And we have the opportunity, while we're alive, while we are indwelt with the Spirit and able to serve you here in this world, to write our own stories by the leadership of God the Holy Spirit. Help us to be courageous and bold and faithful to do the good works you have prepared for us to walk in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.